This episode of Space Q is brought to you by MDA. MDA is an internationally recognized leader in space robotics, satellite antennas and subsystems, surveillance and intelligence systems, defense and maritime systems, and geospatial radar imagery. Founded in 1969, MDA is recognized as one of Canada's most successful technology ventures with locations in Richmond, Ottawa, Brampton, Montreal, and Halifax. MDA is a Maxars technology company. For more information, visit mdacorporation.com. Five, four, three, two, one. Hi, I'm Mark Boucher. We're halfway through our first semi-annual crowdfunding campaign on Patreon. I want to thank those people who in the last week have got us closest to our first goal. It takes time and money to produce good journalism. Our first goal is a modest one, of covering our basic monthly infrastructure costs. We hope to reach that goal in the coming week. Then we can move on to our second goal of having enough funds to be able to pay our journalists more so we can cover more of the stories Canadians should be aware of. If you don't know, SpaceQ is the only independent Canadian media company reporting on the space sector full-time. We tell the stories that matter. We don't have a paywall. We believe everyone should have access to our reporting. So we need your support to continue to provide daily news and analysis on our website, in our newsletter, and in this weekly podcast. I hope you see the value in what we do and support us. Our Patreon address is patreon.com slash spaceq. You can also support us starting at as little as $2 a month. Some of the small rewards you could get from us include spaceq bookmarks, a spaceq mug, and an opportunity to sit down with me over lunch or dinner to discuss whatever you like. If you want to make an annual or one-time donation, then please contact me at mark at spaceq.ca as Patreon does not support those types of donations. Okay, now, on to our guest. Welcome, Grant, to the SpaceQ podcast. Well, thanks, Mark. It's good to be here. Hi. Deep Space Industries is a five-year-old privately held company that, it, that, when it was first introduced, had a grand vision to mine asteroids and manufacture products in space. At the time the company launched, some people wondered if the idea was crazy. I personally don't think it is. But I do think it's hard. I also think it's a long game. Deep Space Industries is still here and apparently has adapted its business plan to meet the challenge and has been working towards being profitable. Many of our listeners will no doubt want to know what the plan is to mine that first asteroid. But before we discuss that topic, let's start with some basics. Since the company was formed, you haven't been releasing a lot of news. Some news, but not a lot. Last year, when Daniel Faber, the CEO at the time, left the company, he said not too long afterwards that he was proud to have led the company uh, to accumulate sales in the area of around $10 million in 2016. Uh, that was really the first public acknowledgement of any sales volumes. So my question is, what are DSI's revenue streams uh, that have been generating the revenue that keeps you guys going? Okay, it's a great question. Um, so I, I'll, I'll answer that by giving a little bit of context and a little bit of background about the strategy. Um, you're absolutely right. The DSI was founded to pursue a long-term vision. And, you know, I'll talk your ear off about that. I think you know that. And I think some of your listeners know that too. But um, there's a lot of distance between where we are now and the vision we have of a human future in space that is facilitated by space resources. The way the DSI approaches its business is to decompose um, the overall roadmap between where we are now and where we want to be into a set of uh, unambiguously revenue generating steps. Um, it's very important for us that we don't try to pursue a plan that has big gaps in commercial viability because it's a long road between where we are now and the future that we want. So when we started to really look at even just the initial prospecting missions that we wanted to do to survey and assess asteroid resources, we realized that all of the missing pieces that are required to take the state of the art in small spacecraft and small low cost spacecraft, such as it is today, 
and leverage that into doing exploration missions. All the missing technology pieces required to do that could be plugged into the existing marketplace today to enhance or enable customers doing, shall we say, more conventional things. Um, one of the cornerstones there has been propulsion. Um, the absence of great launch safe clean, easy to work with propulsion has been a missing piece in the satellite world that really prevent um, the microspace revolution from propagating beyond Earth orbit. And so that's where we really started to enter the marketplace, I guess it was a couple of years ago. Um, we brought to market um, two different propulsion products. Um, the most mature one is uh, a water-based propulsion system that you can kind of think as a flying steam kettle. Um, it has good performance. It's a good price point, and you can imagine that customers aren't afraid of working with thrusters that run off of water. Um, the overall uh, market position of that has been vindicated with sales. It's been a principal revenue generator for us. And one of the things that I would say is noteworthy about our company is that instead of taking in very large amounts of equity financing, we've funded ourselves largely from retained earnings on commercial sales. Um, so I guess to, to circle back to uh, hopefully I'm answering your question. Um, everything that we do in the service of the bigger vision has to make money for us. And that has been you know, broken down into a set of products and an overall roadmap that has really started with propulsion um, and is going to start to move into some of the other enabling technologies. Um, but those have been kind of bread and butter products for us that we've sold into the commercial marketplace to hopefully um, help uh, other customers doing more conventional satellite applications to realize their missions. Now, was the propulsion part of the roadmap, was that something that you brought to the company or was that already uh, part of the roadmap and then you came in and you helped to uh, make it into a reality? Well, I'll, I'll, I'll gladly take credit for it. <laughs> um, there's nobody there's nobody here to argue with me about it. Um, no, it, 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 it evolved very quickly because when we thought, when we contemplated the idea of doing small spacecraft asteroid prospecting missions, we looked for propulsion solutions in the marketplace that we could buy. And they were all either very immature, they were all either very dangerous and correspondingly expensive, or they were all vaporware. And if propulsion was always going to be the most expensive part of any mission we did, I'd rather buy it at cost, not at retail. So we innovated two classes of propulsion systems, one that runs off of water and a higher performance, higher thrust system that uses propellants that are non-toxic, non-explosive, but we can still synthesize from uh, asteroid resources in situ in the long term. Now, customers don't have to care about that part of the story in order to recognize that our pursuit of it can generate them useful technology products. But every time we sell you know, a water thruster or an ISRU-compatible thruster, we're helping to create an ecosystem of users now that can be serviced by the resources we hope to bring into the marketplace in the decades to come. So it, it fit very nicely. And you know, propulsion is one of those areas that, again, just hasn't been, um, I think, tackled in both um, a high performance but still cost-effective and rigorous way in the small satellite community. It's not to say there aren't other options out there, but we saw a gap and we experienced a gap. And so we set out to really solve our own problem because we knew it was a shared problem. Does that make sense? Yeah. In terms of some of those other options, um, are there other technologies, propulsion technologies uh, that are, uh, I suppose, uh, viable other than what you've been doing? So absolutely. Um, but the devil's always in the details, and it depends very much on how you want to use it. Um, you can kind of categorize um, high-performance propulsion systems into two broad camps – um, high thrust chemical systems that'll get you where you want to go uh, quickly, um, that allow you to maneuver effectively instantaneously from the standpoint of the physics of it. Um, and then there are very low thrust propulsion systems that you have to operate continuously. They have um, high performance in principle, but when you look at time value of money considerations or the operations costs of having to uh, maneuver for many, many months to even many, many years, to affect an appreciable velocity change for your spacecraft, which is kind of the key metric, um, 
they become very onerous on the back end. And engineers love to think about the just the performance numbers. They don't like to think about the dollar signs. Uh, the dollar signs are, are best served by being able to go where you want to go as quickly as possible and reduce the operations costs, particularly when you're very far away from Earth, where operations become very expensive. So there are definitely there are definitely use cases for other systems in the market, but one of the key enablers that's really helped the small satellite revolution, um, for lack of a better word, explode, um, has been the availability of commercial rideshare, being able to hitchhike on existing launch vehicles to get into orbit. Um, great high-performance propulsion systems that are derived from legacy um, approaches are typically as toxic as chemical weapons <laughs> and comparably uh, regulated and are ostensibly non-starters or at least extremely expensive to uh, bolt onto the side of a launch vehicle uh, and, and accomplish a commercial rideshare enabled mission. So it was very important for us to not just do very high performance propulsion, but to do very safe propul uh, propulsion. Um, the system that we've developed that is going to be the core of our first asteroid mission is apples to apples performance comparable with what legacy system legacy bipropellant systems use but it's non-hypergolic it's low toxicity it's safe to handle and therefore can easily be manifested for flight as a commercial ride share um being able to hitchhike a ride to even just low earth orbit and then just decouple yourself from the, the decouple your mission from the problem of launch and still have a high performance propulsion option is a fundamental enabler, not just of the missions that we want to do, but of other people's ambitions that require a lot of propulsive capability, but don't want to incur the cost of a dedicated launch vehicle. Okay. Now, throwing that right back at you, if you had a dedicated launch vehicle, I, because there's a raft of small satellite launch vehicles that are getting close to coming on the market aside from uh, rocket lab which appears to be uh, well on its way um, does that help your case because um, when these small satellite launchers dedicated ones launch instead of being a ride chair and then having to propulsively move to their orbit the small satellite launcher in theory will get it to the orbit that it needs to get to thus saving to use the onboard propulsion does that help your cause very much so. Um, so generally speaking, the the host of small satellite, merging small satellite dedicated launchers um, have good capacity to low Earth orbit. The capacity falls off beyond low Earth orbit. Um, the conventional approach to doing deep space missions is you buy the rocket and the rocket throws you into interplanetary space and you're on your way. Um, whether it's commercial rideshare or the dedicated small satellite launch capabilities that are emerging, um, their ceiling is really low Earth orbit. So if you want to do missions beyond low Earth orbit, you have to bring to the table enough performance to go from low Earth orbit to any other destination you care about beyond that. The more launch vehicles that can um, get us into low Earth orbit that emerge, the better, um, because we have applications that uh, are not just limited to exploration purposes that we care about commercially. But um, yeah, the, the more capacity there is, the better off we are, the better off the entire community is. But the performance of those launch vehicles typically falls off very quickly if you want to go much beyond low Earth orbit. Right, so, so you still need to get from there to out there. Yeah. So let's talk a little bit uh, about your customer base. Uh, I know that you had uh, Hawkeye 360 as a customer. Uh, you just signed a contract yesterday with Astro Digital, and we'll get some details uh, from that in a second. Um, but who can you tell us who else uh, some of your other customers have been over the last couple of years? Um, so we, the Hawkeye 360 uh, customer was actually one of the very first ones that we brought in uh, under the commercial model we have, which, um, and they've been a fantastic customer. Uh, we, we, we acted was, as a prime. That, oh, that sorry, was just, that, that was just over a year ago. Oh, you know, the time, time is a flat <laughs> circle. I, <laughs> um, I think it was a uh, closer to almost two years now. I think okay. it's approaching two years. I could be wrong, but, um, you can, you can fact check me on that later. The, we got in on the ground floor with that customer. Um, we picked out the parts of the overall, mission that aligned with our technology roadmap. And then we partnered with the Canadian um, uh, University of Toronto Space Flight Laboratory uh, to round out the rest of the solution. 
which was fantastic for us because it let us focus on the parts of the technology solution that aligned with our plans and not get um, distracted by trying to replicate a capability that I would argue they're you know foremost in, in the world on. So um, that was a very good position to be in. We won that business on a competitive basis and what they loved about among the things that they loved about the solution, if I can put words in their mouth, was launch safe, simple, clean propulsion. Um, we recently, as you said, uh, done a deal um, for um, several water-based thrusters for Astro Digital, which uh, are um, a company that are located in the uh, the South Bay, South San Francisco Bay area, uh, very close to us. Um, we are doing in total, and I, I expect that the company is going to announce more of its commercial partners soon as some of them come out of stealth mode and some of them are prepared to make public announcements. But in total, we expect to be shipping um, and we're contracted to develop and ship this year, 34 different propulsion systems across a range of different customers. So it's been a very successful product for us overall. And uh, we look forward to announcing some of those other customers when uh, they feel it's appropriate. But that's uh, that's been a very successful product line for us. And you have about twenty employees now. Um, how many are working on this particular product area? So that's one of the things that I, I have affection for in in this business model. Is I would say that around to work in round numbers, um, around ish numbers, I'd say a quarter of our capacity is dedicated to serving commercial customers, and about seventy five percent of our engineering capacity is actually now working on what we hope will be our first internally funded commercial mission to an asteroid. Okay. Um, we'll get to that in a minute because a lot of people want to hear about that. Um, other products. Are there any other products that you can talk about now that are uh, either being sold or that are going to be coming out in the near term? Yep. So one of the um, one of the things that we care about, and this is a thing that is often um, missing um, on the propulsion side, and this is still saying propulsion themed because everything we care about is fundamentally enabled by propulsion. Um, there are all the other bits and pieces that you kind of wrap around a propulsion system to enable, let's say, a complete propulsion module or a dedicated upper stage or uh, a kick stage for smaller satellites. So there are lightweight structure innovations that are required in that um, guidance, navigation, and control solutions that are cost-effective that are required to enable that. And we're working in all of those areas. One of the major areas, one of the least, I think, um, Luke, uh, one of the least flashy but most important areas that we're working in is in um, achieving a high degree of radiation tolerance in low-cost avionics. So we're developing uh, a suite of our own, what, we, what we're uh, calling you know, deep space compatible avionics that are radiation tolerant but still track the current state of the art in um, electronics capability right now. And one of the other less flashy but extremely important problems for um, deep space mission context is communications and navigation. And we've got, I think, some really neat stuff that we're doing in, um, on that side of things that we probably won't be talking about very publicly until later in the year. But... Um, Unless you crack the communications and navigation nuts, as well as the propulsion problem, you're not going to get very far very effectively. And I think we've got some interesting insight into into how to address that that we'll talk about when we're at a higher level of maturity. Uh, you, you brought up the point, I think, uh, at the very beginning that we hadn't um, announced a lot. We um, We really want to be in a spot where we talk about things after we do them rather than beforehand. And um, that's always, I don't know, I, I, I struggle with that. I get excited about it. And there's a lot of hyperbole in this business. So we'd rather fly under the radar and announce these uh, things after we've done them rather than talk a lot about them beforehand, if that makes sense. Now, I'm thinking that maybe we should have done this interview um, in person. And uh, after we've sat down and got caught up and had a couple of beers, maybe I would have been able to prize some more out of you. <laughs> <laughs> Probably not. No, okay. but but, but the, the majority, the short answer to that question is we're we're selling propulsion. We are we do have some customers that are engaging us on the avionics side, but we haven't started marketing those products yet because they are not at an appropriate level of maturity. And when they are, then you'll hear more about them. 
and I should let our audience know that I've known you for quite a while now. And uh, <laughs> so we've had lots of talks over the years. Okay. Um, in, in terms of financing, um, you got some uh, you know, initial investment. Uh, you've obviously had some sales. Um, uh, and if I'm understanding correctly, you're, you know, you're just about ready to close your series A funding. Um, tell me a little bit about, if you can, about, uh, about the fundraising side. Um, sure. So it, it's, it's always an adventure. Um, one of the, I, I think I'll, I'll, again, I'll start with a philosophical comment about how we go about this, where we really cared about creating a company where the rate of our financing would dictate the rate of our activities, not the fundamental uh, choices that we made about what we do. Um, or, or said differently, if we were going to be very successful in fundraising, we wanted that to accelerate our activities. But if we weren't, we wanted to be able to fully bootstrap from commercial activities. So we never wanted to be in a situation where um, an inability to secure equity financing would tank the company. Um, and I think to the extent that we have survived and grown over five years, um, that that the survival has vindicated that approach. Though, of course, with any company, it's not without challenges. Um, you're right that it, it is, um, it's not something that we have formally announced yet, but we are closing the first tranche of our Series A financing uh, presently. I think that's a matter of public record. Um, it's a multi-million dollar financing round. Uh, we'll make a more definitive announcement about that, um, hopefully in the next little while. Um, we view that as um, funds that supplement um, retained earnings from commercial sales and when taken together allow us to really accelerate the our pursuit of our, our vision. Um, if we're not successful with equity financing at any point, um, we can always fall back on the bread and butter technology sales in the commercial marketplace and that's um, central to our philosophy. Um, but uh, in in the last in the in this year, um, the commercial traction we've had and a lot of the reorganization of the company that we've done, and um, I think a lot of the technology maturity has has certainly helped us on the fundraising side. Um, it's always very uh, it, it, it's very easy to get lost in um, in the the fog of war and in, in fundraising, especially in Silicon Valley, because it's there's a, there are a, a lot of different voices and there's a lot of hype. And it's a really interesting environment to work in. But um, things are going well for us, I guess, is the short answer. And I think that we'll be making more definitive announcements about that shortly as well. It sounds like um, the company is being very patient when it comes to the financing side of it, uh, not like not rushing into the equity uh, venture financing, like uh, like you say. Um, <laughs> well, there's a reason. There's a, there's a the it's 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 very interesting. The um, um, one of the things that you do see some companies do is give away a large amount of their ownership very quickly um, to investors that you know want to gobble up a fair chunk of of, of that company. We're um, as a, as a shareholder myself in, in DSI, we we really do want to be fiercely protective of equity. Uh, we want to preserve our own ownership, and you know there's there's a strong case to be made for taking only as much financing as you need uh, in order to make sure that you secure and maintain your own ownership to your own benefit in your your company. Um, so I, I think there are a lot of shipwrecks on that shore, companies that either uh, diluted their founders um, uh, very aggressively by taking large equity contributions more than they needed. And there are a lot of people who've been reckless with, uh, with ownership of their companies. Uh, and I think it's not very difficult to find stories along those lines. So, so it's a, it's a balance. Um, on the other hand, it's, it's nice to bring in substantial amounts of money that can accelerate your vision, but it, it always is fundamentally about finding a balance and, and doing the right thing for your shareholders. Uh, and I think, uh, in part, it has to do with the type of company that you are, which is, um, you know, you're a technology company, uh, 
that one day wants to be a mining company and not on Earth, but in space. And you know, this this you know, this is really a a, a long game. Uh, and it's not like you're a tech startup in Silicon Valley that's producing a service that has a mobile app, and you know, you got to get it out to market, and you got to get the financing to you know to to, to get everybody uh, on board with it. This is a a different type of uh, venture. Um, but we would it's it's yeah it's it's and and in the in the institutional venture capital um community it's nice to be able to see as you know software plays are always going to be attractive because they have um well-established scaling models um it's attractive to have a company with a very concrete product with a very clear exit that happens on the time frame compatible with the funds you know say five to seven year lifespan um, what DSI is doing is fundamentally a, a much longer term thing. And um, while there are opportunities along the way um, to reward early shareholders and early investors, certainly uh, we intend, as we have done so far, to continue to reinvest retained earnings and our seed corn to take the next step along the roadmap. So investors that want to pursue the long term vision um are very excited about that because they want to see the long-term vision accomplished, but that doesn't always necessarily fit the institutional venture capital model that uh, a lot of other companies kind of mold themselves into in Silicon Valley. I wonder, um, you may not have this answer, but have you turned down any people who've wanted to invest in the company? Um, I, I'm not sure that, not that I can think of, but I, I'm, I'm not sure that, um, I have the complete picture because I've been with the company for only half of its life. Right. Okay. So uh, let's get into um, uh, some of the future stuff, uh, and that is uh, your first mission. I mean, I, I mean, you're a five-year-old company at this point, and you've actually been generating revenue, but you actually haven't flown anything in space yet, right? Like a, no, none, none, right. none of so your the, none of your uh, products have actually gone on on a mission that's launched yet, right? Yeah, it's one of the reasons that we want to talk about things after they happen rather than before. Is um, in aerospace in particular, uh, as you know, um, flight heritage is is everything. And until unless you've flown um, either a technology product or even a spacecraft platform that you've been um, marketing to the community, people are naturally intrinsically skeptical about the claims you make. And I think that's entirely fair and it's entirely warranted given um, a, a lot of the past history uh, in this business. So it's a conservative business. Um, so we've, we've shipped several propulsion systems for other customers. Um, the first flight of, uh, I think, four of those in total will be in the mid-year timeframe, late July to early August. Um, the team's goal internally, and I think what we've we've stated as a goal publicly as well, is to be in a position to fly our first commercial mission beyond Earth orbit, and that is to say, financed by the company, um, flown beyond Earth orbit in the 2020 timeframe. But uh, our, our our head of strategy, uh, Peter Sobrani, always jokes that in aerospace you want to live in the eternal present tense. So yeah, uh, we should always be skeptical of schedules, including our own. Um, and R and D has a way of slipping to the right. So we have to be realistic about our timeframes. But we do know what we're aiming for internally. Um, our customers will be flying our products this year, and our own internally funded missions we are aiming to fly by the end of the decade. I think having Peter on the podcast would be really interesting. <laughs> um, he's got some very interesting views. <laughs> well, he's 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 better than me. Um, he, <laughs> he, he 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 threads the needle of "don't look dumb and don't get fired" much more effectively than I will. <laughs> <laughs> All right, uh, uh, just to clarify, one of the points you made: you said uh, you have four systems that you expect to fly <laughs> by mid-year. Um, because I'm not aware of this. Uh, how many is that for individual systems on four different uh, missions, or is that two systems on one uh, satellite? Uh, or in, yep, sorry. In particular, that's um, three spacecraft uh, for Hawkeye 360 that will be utilizing our propulsion, and for which we were the mission prime contractor. Right. And then um, the um, 
uh, another propulsion system for a customer that we're keeping confidential right now. Okay. So this uh, new round of funding that you look like you're about to close, um, from what I understand, that will be used to help move the uh, DSI mission itself forward so that by 2020, um, you actually do get to do that uh, first mission. So what, what can you tell me about that mission and what will it be and what's sort of the plan between now and 2020? Sure. Um, so, you know, this is kind of uh, near and dear to my heart. The um, I think that we talked about this for the first time at SmallSat, uh, the Utah State University Small Satellite Conference um, a year and a half ago, I think. Um, the first the first mission that we're intending to do, we call Prospector One. Um, it's using a spacecraft platform we're developing called Explorer that we intend to market to other customers, as I think I discussed earlier. Um, but fundamentally, what we hope this will be is the first um, private mission to survey an asteroid as a precondition for um, eventual resource extraction. And from our standpoint, um, you know, the minimum success criteria of that mission would be to demonstrate all of the technologies that go into it. But of course, we have some internal stretch goals as well. But fundamentally, what most of the engineers in our company are working towards is trying to do a first asteroid prospecting mission um, in the 2020 timeframe. And the goal of that is to, I mean, there, there, there are a number of technology demonstration goals. It's fundamentally a technology demonstration mission. But there's also, it's also the case that while, you know, we consider asteroids to be the most prospective um, resource to enable human expansion to space in the long term, um, there's still a lot of unknowns about asteroids. Uh, we understand bulk elemental composition of a lot of the, the now more than 17,000 near Earth objects that have been discovered. Um, but there are still a lot of geophysical and geotechnical question marks about these bodies that you have to answer in order to intelligently be able to design you know, future extraction and processing equipment. Um, now, corollary of that is that there's a substantial amount of scientific um, information that can be brought that can be returned from any particular body. And the, the joke that we make a lot of the time is that uh, all asteroids are kind of special snowflakes. Even asteroids of the same taxonomy uh, exhibit different geophysical characteristics. Um, so there's a lot of exploration to be done, and there's a lot that we still need to do to improve our understanding of not just what asteroids are made out of, but how to interact with them. Um, so, it, you know, we said this, I think we established this in the beginning. Um, the future that we care about is one where people are living and working in space in substantial numbers. Um, human expansion is only possible by using the resources native to where they're going. That's always been true of human expansion. But, you know, there's a lot that we need to learn about how to extract and process materials from the asteroids in order to enable that future. And if there's a lot of information you have to gather, the easiest way to gather that is to make sure you've got a very low-cost exploration capability to go and do so. But you can also sell into other uh, more well-established markets. Um, and that's why we are very much focused on developing extremely low-cost, high-performance exploration spacecraft and technologies. So a couple of questions related to this. Um, have you already targeted an asteroid or is that yet to come? <laughs> so, yeah, the, the short answer is yes. Um, and in fact, there, there are several near-Earth uh, objects that are very prospective for um, these initial missions. Uh, one of the things that we care about is making sure that we have a very large number of prospective targets so that you're not married to any particular launch window, um, so that there's always a target of opportunity that you can go to. Um, I'll say that um, contrary to some of the plans that have been described by other companies operating in this space, um, our initial missions are not predicated on finding any a particular resource, um, and it opens up what we consider to be prospective targets uh, to a broader number of objects compared to what other people have contemplated doing. Um, but the short answer is we have a list, <laughs> okay. and it's uh, it's a really interesting problem to work through the I would inundate you with uh, if you didn't cut me off. <laughs> uh, now, related to that, instrumentation. 
Uh, you know, this is a tech demo. Can you tell us what type of instrumentation you're going to have on the spacecraft? Yeah, at the risk of doing um, too much of a, of a technical deep dive, which I've been told to avoid doing sometimes, but I'll do it anyway. Um, the, the initial mission that we uh, care about flying, in addition to um, navigation and engineering cameras, will carry um, a pretty good multispectral camera. Um, it will carry um, a limited mid-wave infrared um, imaging capability to detect basically water absorption features in hydrated meteorology if it exists on the target asteroid, and also a very compact uh, combination of neutron and gamma spectrometer. Uh, and that gives you basically um, uh, depth fundamentally as well as bulk elemental composition. But uh, neutron, uh, you, can, you can image an asteroid remotely and look at water, look for and observe water um, absorption bands. So there's a three micron water absorption feature that can indicate uh, that an asteroid is carbonaceous in nature, um, but you won't really know very much about the the more bulk hydrated um, characteristics of the asteroid. That's something that penetrates beneath the surface layer that gives you depth. Um, neutron spectroscopy is good for that. Um, there are some exciting developments that have happened amongst some of the partners we work with in some very compact, very low profile, low size weight and power uh, neutron gamma spectrometers. Um, now, these are fundamentally proximity instruments. You have to get pretty close to use them. Um, but uh, it's really kind of a, we see that as an enabling sensor suite. And that kind of data co-registered with um, imagery can give you very powerful, um, I guess, for lack of a better way of saying it, a resource map of an overall small near-Earth asteroid. And any grapplers or anything to take a sample um, I, I, there are some stretch goals that we're looking at, um, but I'm not in a position to be definitive about that yet. I think I've, I think I've already, um, been extremely ambitious in what I've described. Okay. So, um, we'll see how things go. And size of the, of uh, the spacecraft, what size of spacecraft are we talking about? So we're talking about, um, a, a, about a bar fridge sized microsatellite. So, um, an ESPA Grande class vehicle that has around 300 kilograms of total launch mass, total wet mass, and on the order of about 55 kilograms of dry mass. Um, and so for the, the rocket scientists in your crowd, they can infer what the range of Delta V capabilities of that kind of platform would be. But fundamentally, what we're trying to bring into the marketplace, not just for these missions, but because there are some other interesting applications that get enabled by this is an ESPA Grande class platform that has more than five kilometers per second of Delta V capability in it. All right. Before we get on to some more interesting questions, uh, I need to mention our second sponsor. Uh, Grant, have you read any of Michio Kaku's books? Um, yeah, actually I read, um, was it, it was, uh, I think it was called visions. Um, uh, science revolutionized in the 21st century. It was in the, I think, the mid-1990s. Ah, okay, there you go. I haven't read that one. Um, but uh, Dr. Kaku is a theoretical physicist who co-founded uh, String Field Theory. He also happens to be a great communicator. And Penguin Random House Canada just published his newest book. Here's what it's about. We're entering a new golden age of space exploration. Moving human civilization to the stars is increasingly becoming a scientific possibility and a necessity. In his new book, The Future of Humanity, world-renowned physicist Dr. Michio Kaku explores developments in technology that may allow us to terraform and build cities on Mars, and even beyond our own solar system as the search for a twin Earth continues. The Future of Humanity is an exhilarating journey to a future among the stars. Find your copy today wherever great books are sold. Well, I wonder if DSI is in the book. <laughs> well, if we are, that's wonderful. And if we're not, then I would like you to retract the endorsement. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> All right. So um, you're not the only company in this space. So let's take a little bit of a broader, big picture look at asteroid mining. Um, I think around the same time or might have been before you guys announced uh, the formation of the company, Planetary Resources uh, also came into formation. Um, recently it announced that it was going to use its ARCID-6, uh, to generate revenue by selling imagery and data. Uh, that was reported by, uh, GeekWire. 
Um, they've also uh, said uh, through this GeekWire uh, article that there were some notable staff reductions. Uh, before the reductions, they reportedly had 70 staff, which is quite a bit, uh, more than three times what you guys have. Uh, it seems that getting a company uh, set up for asteroid mining is proving to be, what many have already said, very much a long game. Um, so how do you, how does your company plan to survive the long game and begin mining an asteroid someday? Yeah. So, I mean, that's a great question. And, um, one of the things that, that excites me is that you've got a lot of more, probably more companies than are generally known, um, operating in this overall ecosystem that are pursuing the long-term vision of space resources with very different business models. And you need a diversity of different business models uh, for the industry to succeed. Um, some people will fail. In fact, most will fail because most startups do fail. But it's only by pursuing a lot of different ways to the end goal that as an overall initiative, it will be successful. Um, I, we, of course, have been kind of fellow travelers with planetary resources for a while. Um, I think that they very much, very strongly position themselves as, as uh, a mining company. Um, and they map, they map to um, a mining paradigm, which uh, um, I think that they've been doing uh, for a, a little while now. But w- we would kind of see it as a, if they're the mining company in this space, we're more the pickaxe and shovel company in this space. Um, we care about selling the tools that are necessary to enable that future um, as a business model more than we care about being a mining company, at least for the foreseeable future. In between now and when there is a thriving economy in cislunar space where there is a demand for space resources, there are a lot of things that has to have, have to happen. There are a lot of things that have to be de-risked, not just on the technology side, but business models, the overall market, the legal uh, policy regime. Uh, and in between now and when those risks are retired, um, if you want to survive, you have to sell to existing mature customers and you have to solve a problem for them. And I think I mentioned earlier in the interview when we started to look at constructing a roadmap that could survive that long game, we realized that everything we need to enable the future we care about, we can sell into existing or emerging marketplaces elsewhere the, to enhance or enable existing customers elsewhere. We don't have to wait for the future that we care about to arrive. Um, we can bootstrap it by selling the, the tools that we need uh, today. So so Planetary Resources has publicly talked about um, – doing Earth observation, um, which is, of course, has been a, a hot button topic. I think that their focus in particular was on um, thermal infrared um, hyperspectral imaging. Uh, I have no insight into how that's going for them, um, but uh, it's a different approach to the one that we're taking. But as I said, I think that overall, as an industry perspective, uh, you need a diversity of approaches so that we have this, uh, the, the end goal that we all share can be brought to fruition. Does that make sense? Yeah. Uh and now another big picture question. <laughs> um, in terms of that actual, if you will, shovel uh, hitting the asteroid, um, when when do you think it'll be? Uh, what kind of time frame do you think it'll be before somebody actually does begin uh, doing any type of asteroid mining? Oof, that's a good question. Um, that's a question. That's that a I crystal ball question. Avoid. I would, I would, I would really love to sidestep that if I possibly could, but no, I'll, I'll, I mean, I'll bound it. I'll bound it for you with my own perspective. I mean, your worst case scenario is never. I won't hold you um, to it. <laughs> so, so let's just doubt. The worst case scenario is never happens. Um, I, I, the, the, the optimistic case or the optimistic um, thinkers in this space see a future that is being um, advertised by the Jeff Bezos of the world, the Elon Musk's of the world, um, even the ULA's of the world, of an increasingly thriving economy in cislunar space, um, one that is enabled by propellants that you can source from the asteroids. And you can also, in principle, source from the moon, but I won't get into the moon versus asteroids thing unless you really want to. Um, we'll get to that <laughs> in a different second. Different opportunities, different opportunities with different challenges. Um, so, so if we track the optimism of the billionaire space entrepreneurs or even the, the more conventional players that want to provide services in the vicinity of the earth. Um, you know, the, I have no difficulty imagining that over the next decade, um, you'll start to see and uh, be the beginning of a demand for some resources, uh, some space sourced resources. 
in cisgender space. Now, of course, I have no difficulty imagining this because this is the vision that I care about, so I'm biased in, in one direction. But historically, we, we always overestimate what we can do in the near term, and we dramatically underestimate what we can do in the long term. Um, so I'm, of course, optimistic about this future, but I also think it's very important when you are planning your business activities to be realistic. And it's very much why we wanted to create a business model that was about selling technologies that enable this future, not trying to bet big on that future up front and risk getting um, risk running off a cliff in, in chasing it too fast. So what about the moon? Do I have any interest in the moon? Um, so we're, we're interested in helping um, some of the companies that are betting on the moon. Um, here's the fundamental challenge from my standpoint is, um, and there's a lot to unpack here, so I'll try to be pithy, but um, once you get into Earth orbit, you've spent an extraordinary amount of energy crawling your, or digging out of a gravity well. Um, and I think uh, the, there's that Heinlein quotation, which I'll butcher, um, that once you're in low Earth orbit, you're halfway to anywhere in the solar system. Um you know, it's. I don't see why it would be attractive to pop yourself out of one gravity well and then plunk yourself down in another one. And the moon is um, a very challenging environment to work in. You've got um, if if and there's still a question mark surrounding this. If if there is water on the moon um, in great quantity or in great concentration, it's in effectively permanently shadowed regions on the moon that are very difficult to operate in and to access. Um, the near earth uh, the near earth asteroids the near earth asteroid population has all of is has essentially limitless quantities of all of the materials that are required to facilitate the expansion of civilization from from volatiles and water to construction uh, materials to, to to iron and nickel to even precious metals platinum group metals everything that you can imagine is available in effectively limitless quantities in the asteroids and they're small bodies which means they don't have appreciable gravity and in fact for very small bodies um, gravity is only one of the dominant forces that is at play in, in keeping these bodies intact and, and, co and um, cohesive um, they're just much the, the, the problem of, of, of asteroid mining while still challenging of course of course is um, is more one of, of rendezvous than it's one of landing and digging and that's a very different paradigm. It's a very different way of thinking about how you can pull resources um, off of an object. But all of which to say, there are tons of asteroids, and they are uh, they offer effectively limitless quantities of whatever material you think is going to be of interest and is going to be perspective in the marketplace first. Um, the moon's a little bit of a tougher sell um, from my standpoint. And you know, there are people that you and I both know that would have a spirited debate about this. And I'm not trying to say that uh, I'm, well, of course I believe I'm right, but they would disagree. So, you know, reasonable people can disagree about this, but I think there's also a regulatory challenge associated with the moon, given it's, it's ostensible visibility. Um, we'll see what happens, but uh, you know, the law and policy regime is of course always going to be a risk in these areas. And um, the moon is bright and right there. So you've just, just, to all. <laughs> you've just given me an idea for another podcast, Moon versus Asteroids. Um, okay, um, let's talk about uh, technology and in particular challenges and challenges that are facing DSI as it goes uh, towards launching that first mission and then um, new challenges that might come out of that mission. So uh, what are some of the key challenges that you see, if there are any, uh, that are need to be addressed before you, you're successful in your mission? Um, well, aside from the, um, I mean, the, the, the real challenge is always going to be funding, which is uh, why, you know, we've been, we spent a long time trying to make sure that we had a, a path that was relatively low cost and could be financed. Um, the the, the no bucks, no buck Rogers joke, but that's not a type that doesn't answer your question because you asked about technology. Yeah. Um, certainly for initial, certainly for initial prospecting missions, um, great propulsion, guidance, navigation, control, communications are, and, and thermal control, which is again, one of those not really um, visible, but is still extremely important problems for small spacecraft going out um, 
into uh, to to venture to long range targets. Um, you know, pr- propulsion is is a very intuitive one. You need a lot of propulsion to to propulsive capability to get anywhere. But communications is the big problem, and not just at the spacecraft side, but on the ground infrastructure side. Um, existing assets, the notable one being um, the Deep Space Network, which is used to communicate with the three deep space network sites that have 34 and 70 meter dishes. That gives you a sense of the scale. Uh, they're used to communicate with everything that's in interplanetary space right now that NASA has launched. Um, can be very oversubscribed. Um, one of actually one of the the principles we have when we evaluate whether an asteroid is perspective is making sure that during a mission. Um, that we would go to it, that it's not um, in the sky at the same time as Mars is, because Mars is the capacity in terms of communicating the spacecraft to Mars is, is uh, quite taxed. But um, you need big dishes. You need big aperture uh, in order to communicate with spacecraft at long range. And there's really no easy way around it. There are a lot of people that have proposed doing laser communications, but the um, uh, it doesn't really address the problem because that, that just brings in a whole host of new challenges. And and we're, we're not particularly um, enthusiastic about that solution as a baseline solution. It can be a good um, icing on the cake kind of solution. But uh, fundamentally, communication is one of the big challenges. And I, we, we've got some, I think, some interesting um, thinking on that on the spacecraft side of it. But fundamentally, we need big dishes on the ground to talk to our spacecraft for the foreseeable future. Um, and that is uh, a technology challenge, is a capacity and availability challenge, which all whittles down to a cost challenge. Um, one of the things we try to do is pick asteroid targets that are as close to Earth as possible um, in order to ameliorate that to some extent, but you can't get around it. Uh, deep space communications is hard. And packaged with that is navigation. Deep space network, of course, is also used um, for radiometric navigation with spacecraft. And that is also extremely challenging and can be extremely costly very quickly. Um, so uh, a higher degree of autonomous navigation on spacecraft is a big technology challenge. And I haven't even gotten through the first prospecting missions. Um, once it is, once, once it's the case that you've got good geotechnical and geophysical reconnaissance on asteroids, then you get into some of the more resource-related challenges. Um, how are you going to extract material? How are you going to design equipment that can extract material that is robust to failure, that has as few moving parts as possible, that makes fundamental use of the fundamental resources you have, which are light and and, and darkness, which is hot and cold? Um, how are you going to make that equipment not fail? Even just the, the non-sexy problems of anchoring to asteroids are extremely challenging because you don't have a lot of gravity. I would advertise that as a benefit of asteroids, but everything that we have as a reference point when we think about mining is, referen- is rooted in um, the intuition of working in a gravity in a, in a gravity field, and you've got to design equipment that has to work basically in the absence of substantial gravity. Um, you know, volatile extraction. How do you extract volatiles, say, from a carbonaceous asteroid without also extracting poisons that can uh, damage or destroy your equipment? Um, how do you do the separation? How do you collect that? Condense it? Store it? Make sure that you can do that. Uh, during what we call the mining season of an asteroid and then have enough capability to actually fly it back to a place that's useful. Um, and it goes on. The, 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 the list of, it's a laundry list of technology challenges that you've got to knock down one at a time and you got to do it right and in the right order. Um, so there's a lot there. But in the near future, if you want to talk about low-cost, deep space, Kind of microsatellite missions, it's propulsion, communications, and navigation is really what it whittles down to. I don't know. I'm listening to your your list, and I'm starting to get depressed. <laughs> oh no! It's, this is this is this is what gets me out of bed in, in the morning. Is like I, on uh, like on any particular day in the life of this company, I'm either working with a customer um, to help you know get a water-based propulsion system into their spacecraft, or we're talking to an investor about why we think that's exciting, or we're working with the engineers and actually knocking down these problems, or I get to you know have some time in my office to think about the far-ranging stuff and start to contemplate some solutions uh, to that in conjunction with, I think, what we would consider is a world-class science team led by uh, John Lewis, our chief scientist, who has literally written all the books on asteroid mining and is a true pleasure to work with and, and to have as a counterpart. It's it's just, it, it, it never fails to be interesting. There are no mundane challenges that we're facing. Um, and that is extremely exciting for me. It's, um, it's a really, I think, opt- it's a future of optimism and abundance that we care about pursuing. 
and there is nothing that is boring about getting from here to there from my standpoint. Yeah, the other thought that went through my mind when I was hearing your list was dollar signs. Um, all right. Uh, actually, you know, you, you also brought up an interesting point which uh, about the deep space uh, network. Uh, do you think that, um, and I don't know if somebody's already doing this or not, but uh, do you think we're, we're getting close to uh, having a business case for uh, a private commercial company building its own deep space network to, uh, you know, facilitate uh, missions going forward? Well, you have you have you have organizations like um, Goonhilly in the UK that are, are pursuing exactly that um, uh, deep space network alternative kind of capacity. There are people who are working in a more cis lunar, close to Earth kind of context to extend communication range and to do that with either ground based assets or space based assets. Um, I think the short answer is it's a limited market for now. But if we're successful in what we're doing, I think that there will very rapidly be. Um, a need for that. And not just what we're doing, but you know, there are a lot of companies that want to be operating at long range from Earth. Um, and that's you know, our, our fellow uh, competitors slash friends in the planetary resources guys, the MoonX guys, and everybody that wants to do things on the moon still need a high degree of bandwidth higher than can be offered by conventional commercial capacity. Um, there are people that want to be operating in heliocentric space um, like I think just thinking of the, both the B612 folks um, who want to monitor uh, for, for potentially uh, planet killing or planet schmucking asteroids, but also the space weather community that needs to operate or wants to operate at long range from Earth. Um, you know, the, if we're successful in what we're doing, which is fundamentally you know, bringing into the marketplace a low cost way of doing space exploration missions, we hope there will be a very large number of space exploration missions. That very large number of low cost missions will require communications and navigation capability that, you know, ostensibly is um, a good bootstrap or emerging scenario for um, a commercial deep space network alternative. Um, so, so I guess that, that is not the short answer to your question. Short answer to your question is yes, but not yet. Um, I think it's emerging, but it's not there yet. Um, since you guys have been doing work in this area, um, just throw out this technology question at you. Uh, the European Space Agency last week put out a press release announcing it had conducted a world first in firing an air-breathing electric thruster. Um, uh, based on the little that I know about it, it's basically only useful around a planetary body like the Earth. Uh, what do you think of the concept? Um, so I, I think it's technically really cool. Um, so I've, I've done some work in past experiences looking at low flyers, um, low flying missions like that. And this is the kind of thruster that in principle is um, useful for flying at relatively low altitude in the you know 200 kilometer range, but um, you end up in this. There's a very narrow range of altitudes that where that kind of system can be effective. If you go too low, then the drag uh, electric propulsion is power intensive, so you need ostensibly need good solar arrays. And if you go too low, the drag profile of that spacecraft becomes pretty high. If you go too high, then that rarefied atmosphere is too thin, and you need too much fancy compression gear to get the thing to work. And um, as we, we were kind of discussing this internally and the risk of nitpicking the flow with those altitudes is not really free molecular flow. It's a transition region that makes the free molecular flow assumption kind of break down. But, but basically, there are very narrow range of circumstances under which that kind of solution can work. And the thing that impressed me most about it was that the team got it to work. And I think it's really cool. So it presses all of my buttons as an engineer. Um, but I don't, um, I don't necessarily immediately see how that could be applicable for more than a few niche, um, mission concepts. All right. Um, you used to work at the spaceflight laboratory in Toronto. Uh, our listeners may not know it, but you're originally from Canada. Um, you're still collaborating. Uh, the DSI is collaborating with Spaceflight uh, Laboratory. Can you tell us a little bit about the collaboration and, and how that's going? Uh, sure. So, I mean, the the short story is um, having seen a very large number of, of small spacecraft shops in the world, um, I would recognize SFL as being one of the world leaders in doing low-cost missions that uh, have a demonstrably high level of reliability. And they've been around for almost 20 years now. Um, I, um, they're actually I owe, celebrating their 20th anniversary, uh, right now. 
Yeah, so I, I recognize the pioneering work that they've done in this area, the great work that they continue to do. Their director, Rob Z, I count among my three or four great mentors in my career, and I don't think I'd have a career without them. And when I left um, SFL, it was um, not at all surprising to me that it made sense to continue to work with them. And I think I said earlier in the interview, um, we've partnered with them on a mission for a, a DC-based company called Hawkeye 360. Um, we're doing the parts of that project that align with our technology roadmap. SFL is doing the heavy lifting on the spacecraft side. And that's really allowed us to stay focused. It's engaged them to do what they do best. And that's a partnership that I want to continue to uh, exploit commercially to the extent that I can. I think that we bring a propulsion capability, a few propulsion capabilities to their missions that are unique um, and enabling for them. Uh, and their track record otherwise speaks for itself. So I see no reason why we wouldn't or shouldn't continue to collaborate commercially. Um, I have a lot of respect and affection uh, for what they've done, as I think you know. Hi. Last question. So, uh, and this is, a, again, geared towards the Canadian audience. Um, the Canadian government is going forward with the Canadian CubeSat project, which will see every province and territory involved in developing CubeSats for flight. At the same time, the Canadian satellite design challenge is underway. I think it's in its fourth iteration. Uh, do you have any advice, including possibly career advice, you can share with the undergraduate and graduate students involved in, in this uh, microsatellite development in Canada? Ooh, that's a great question. Um, so... Yes. Um, so I'll, I'll say it in two parts. I'll say it. Um, so let me give what I would uh, let me give a piece of, I guess, engineering advice. And then let me give a piece of business advice. And if I meander too long as I do on the first, just remind me to give the business advice afterwards. Sure. Um, for engineers, for prospective engineers who want to get into the satellite field, there is nothing more valuable in doing hands on work. Um, there's um, uh, a comment that I think. Uh, might have been made by a guy named Henry Spencer that many of the audience will probably know or have worked with. Um, maybe it was made by somebody else. But uh, the joke is that analysis tells you what you think of your design. Testing tells you what the universe thinks of it. There is no substitute for getting your hands dirty and actually building stuff. And there's also no greater social currency or sense of pride that you can derive from your work than knowing that you built it rather than just built a PowerPoint slide for it. So be hands-on. Get involved in the hardware early. Build stuff early, build it often, break a lot of stuff. Um, experience varies directly with equipment ruined, not with how many concept studies you did. Um, so yeah, just get your hands dirty. That's the best advice I can get. And we live in a world now in, in where, where you don't have to spend a decade or more working on one mission. Um, the proliferation of CubeSats allows um, very low cost, complete space missions to happen on single year type timeframes. So there's never been a better time to get into aerospace engineering where you can get more of a hands-on end-to-end mission experience. Um, but the engineering advice would be, for me, fundamentally, get your hands dirty as early as you can. Um, and on the business side, and because this is always a thing that seems to come up, and you didn't bring it up uh, explicitly, but I'll bring it up, um, is the sense of whether there's opportunity in Canada. Um, there's also never been a better time to be an entrepreneur to pursue your own initiatives. Um, there's never been a better time to get into the industry, I think, on an international scale. Um, as much as I have enjoyed working in the United States, um, the limitations that the United States makes puts on those opportunities um, uh, are opportunities for the rest of the international community uh, to do their own thing. Um, it's, uh, there, it is very easy to work internationally across the board um, despite some of the challenges in the United States. And so I, I wouldn't be discouraged whatsoever about the opportunities in aerospace. I think that Canada in particular, but the international community in general, has more opportunities than ever before. And there's also never been more fertile ground to try your own hand at starting your own business. And the access to funding is much more international than a lot of people might think. Um, so so I, would, I would get your hands dirty and I would consider being... Um, pursuing the entrepreneurial spirit, especially for young and emerging engineers, because uh, it's never going to get easier to take risks later. Uh, but yeah, do your own thing and uh, and don't don't be discouraged by what you perceive as artificial barriers to, to pursuing financing, to pursuing commercial markets, or to moving around internationally. Um, uh, you'd be surprised how much opportunity there is. 
Not that I'm encouraging anybody to leave Canada, by the way. Canada's great. <laughs> um, but it's it's it, there's never been a better time to do your own thing than now. All right. Well, uh, I want to thank you, Grant, for being on uh, the Space Q podcast. Uh, hopefully, we'll get you on a show again in the future. It's, uh, it was also great to, to, to catch up on uh, Deep Space Industries. I think a lot of people have had, uh, uh, you know, the curiosity as to, to what's been going on. And I know there is a little bit of information that's floated out there. But it, uh, I think you, you really brought our, our audience up to speed. So thank you. Well, hopefully there's some signal in that noise. I'm, I'm a little jet lagged, as you know, talking to you today. But uh the, uh, it was a real pleasure, and uh, I would love to to come back, and uh, I'm sure other people in our company would love to do the podcast too. And um, I purposely didn't tell Peter I was doing it, and so when he hears it, he'll be envious and want to do it too. So, um, <laughs> yeah, no, th- thanks, Mark, and I, I've enjoyed listening to the podcast as well, and I I really appreciate uh, that you're putting these together. It's uh, it's it's really fantastic. All right, thank you. Well, that's a wrap on this episode of the Space Cube Podcast. If you like this show, please support us on Patreon. The address is patreon.com slash We really appreciate feedback, and to help us, we ask you consider to write a review on Apple Podcasts or Google Play Music if you're so inclined. If you have any comments on this episode, you can email me at podcast at spaceq.ca or you can post them on our website at spaceq.ca where you'll find an archive of each episode if you send me a comment by email i'll write back to you as soon as i can on twitter you can follow us at canada in space and if you use facebook you can find all our articles and links to the podcast on our page the space Q. if you like the show please subscribe to us through your favorite podcast app